Great. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If you are new, especially welcome to one of our services. Um, we are, uh, as Peter was praying, uh, in the book of 1 Timothy right now, preaching-wise. So if you have a Bible or a phone app and want to turn there, we're in chapter 1. This is just week 2. Uh, we'll get there in a second. Had a quick announcement, though. I almost forgot about it again, uh, like first service. Um, before we move on, just so you guys know, the, um, so next Sunday, May 30th, will be our last Facebook Live service for 9 a.m. We're going to discontinue that. Um, we, for a lot of reasons, one of which is attendance is way down on it, on the Facebook Live service. The pandemic's waning, um, but, and it's, things are pretty much back to normal, actually, except for in Minneapolis, there's uh, a lingering mask mandate, but that'll probably become optional, we, we would guess, pretty soon. Um, but anyway, the, the, bi- the big reason, though, we're discontinuing is because it was never really our plan to do this indefinitely. Uh, some churches were before the pandemic or are planning to kind of keep that now. We're aware of that and, hey, no judgment. That's great. It's just our conviction is it's just not the same. It's not church. Uh, it was a grace for a pandemic, but a shell of the true version of what church is, is meant to be. So uh, we'll continue our podcast, though, uh, like we were before the, the um, pandemic. So if you miss church, the sermon's always going to be uh, posted and, and podcasted and sent out, posted to our SoundCloud on our website and and podcasts and so forth. Um, uh, and then if you guys, I know we're not live right now uh, and you guys are here, so it might be kind of moot. But we just want you to know this still so you can kind of spread the word if people need to hear this. And if people are unable to come or if they're sick or still nervous, then as, as pastors, we're going to move towards them and bring communion and bring a abridged version of the sermon or just bring a visitation uh, in person or not, whatever the case may be, like we would pre-pandemic uh, to kind of shut-ins, people that can't come to church. We'll kind of treat it more on that level rather than um, rely on the, the video thing. So it's going to end next week. We're really grateful for what it was. Again, huge thanks to Peter Carlson for basically spearheading that for the past 14 months and Becky who has been kind of producing What's the right word for that? Not producing, whatever. That sounds not like us, but you know what I mean. Uh, the thing back there she does uh, has done a lot of that. Super grateful for those two and um, making it happen. It's been, been, a, been a great thing. Anyway, so with that said, guys, let's dive into 1 Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy, we started last week. We basically looked at the question of who is Timothy. Uh, we answered that a number of ways, but the gist for today is that he was the Apostle Paul's uh, protege. He was, uh, of sorts, he was a... Uh, uh, a father figure to him spiritually. Uh, he was a discipler of him. He was uh, training him to be a pastor. Uh, Timothy was a young guy to stay behind in the city of Ephesus after the gospel got there. So uh, if you don't know this, uh, very important to understand the Bible um, cares for conversions, obviously, but cares uh, even more about churches being established in these cities because that's where people persevere in their conversion. So a uh, big deal in the book of Acts. You also see it dripping off of letters like this where Paul's saying, it's not enough that people convert. Uh, we need to organize them into churches where there's leadership and accountability and preaching and sacraments and oversight, uh, pastoral care, community, friendship, laughing together, singing together. Uh, that's what church is. And that, that right off the bat, right after Jesus rises from the dead and ascends, that becomes a part of the mission where Jesus says, I want you to uh, share the gospel, disciple people, feed my sheep, he says to Peter. If you remember that in John 20 or 21, I forget where it is, but he says, feed my sheep. It's very important in the heart of God, for, for God's heart, to bring people to himself, save them from their sins, but organize them into church families. Uh, and that's been happening, of course, for the past 2,000 years. 
Uh, but Timothy then is a, is a pastor type, is being written to by Paul, saying, I love you. Uh, here's what it means to be a pastor. Here's what it doesn't mean. Here's kind of the job description. Here's what I'm praying for you about. So we learn a lot about the church in these letters as well, which we thought was going to be a, or would be a great thing for us as a community this summer as we've been so scattered during a pandemic. A lot of you have just even joined Hiawatha during a pandemic. And so as we come out of it, to really recenter ourselves on these questions. What is a pastor? What is leadership? What is the gospel? What is the church? Why are all these things so important? Um, and many other things, too, that this book uh, beautifully and comprehensively uh, brings up for us to consider. So, um, so we're going to do that, uh, continue to do that today. Again, if you have a uh, Bible or a phone app, open it up if you want. Otherwise, this will be on screen. 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 11. Today, uh, Paul gets right down to business highlighting the main reason he left Timothy in Ephesus to be a pastor there. So kind of an exciting thing where he's going to say, hey, this is why I've got you here. This is why I'm writing to you. Learn a lot about a pastor's job description as well as what we should centralize as Christians, pastor or not, uh, in our life and, and, um, and many other things today as well. So let's read from verse 3 and following. Paul to Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away in vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we, must, or now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Okay, so let's go back to the first couple of verses. As I said before, I think um, just by the way this is uh, written and uh, just by way of him starting this way rather than maybe ending uh, in a certain way, um, Paul starts his letters with the most important things. It's just something you learn when you read his letters. He starts with the most important. He moves on to the secondary important things, even though they're still important. Not as important, maybe, as the first thing. So um, last week that came up, of course, by centralizing the gospel. Today in verse 3, I, I want to start by asking this question, what is about most importance? Today in verse 3 says, I urged you. So we get a sense of the urgency behind this, right? When I was going to leave you, when I was going to Macedonia... When I was leaving Ephesus myself, I urged you to, as a pastor, remain in that city so that you may charge certain persons in the church not to teach any different doctrine. So that wasn't clear. These are people inside the Ephesian church that are teaching a different doctrine, a different teaching, a different theology, a um, different gospel. And so he says, I want you to stay behind so that you can fix that. <laughs> It's a big part of a pastor's job description. We, there's a lot to being a pastor, but I think right off the bat, you see, not just for Timothy, but for any pastor in any church, at least this is, what, this is what he should be doing, is to charge people inside the church who are slipping theologically and maybe slipping 
doctrinally to, and who are teaching these things, propagating them, just to simply not do that anymore. Um, it's part of what a pastor does. They protect theology. They guard the gate of theology of the church. They stand on the wall and they look for theological threats, whether inside the, the city of the church, so to speak, or outside that are starting to attack and they address them, they fight back against them, whether actively and offensively by preaching the truth or defensively by asking those uh, teaching the falsehoods to stop and trying to love them out of that place um, as, as graciously but firmly um, as, as possible. So uh, if you guys weren't aware of this, I know a lot of you are, but uh, some of you probably aren't, we, um, and I'm sure a lot of churches do this, but we actually have this written, we care so much about this um, being a job description issue, we've written it down. It, it's a part of our constitution and bylaws as a church. It's part of our documentation for what a pastor is to do. Uh, not just me as a paid pastor here, but all of our, our unpaid lay pastors um, uh, at the church as well. This, is, this comes right from the Bible. Uh, it is of utmost importance. It is of primary importance to be men of the word who pray and who feed the church with good doctrine who, um, and protect, who protect as well. So we're, it's another word for it is pastor, pastoring, of pastoring is shepherding. So think of like what shepherds do for sheep. They feed, they protect, they guide, things like that, and doctrine's a, a big piece. So um, I want to start this way because Paul does, but also just, um, again, most of you aren't pastors, and that's, that's great, but just to back up here and see, just appreciate with me how Paul starts the whole book out this way, right? You could start any way, right? You could if you wanted to, but he starts off in verse 3 and says, this is of utmost importance. I want you to stay behind and address false teaching. It's a clear priority for Paul, a clear priority for Timothy as a new pastor uh, to prioritize. There's a lot into going into, into the job, but he says it's not less than this, um, as we were saying before, um, to preaching and teaching, guarding theology. As Jesus says to Peter, to, to feed the sheep and to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Um, another actually really helpful phrase I'll share today, even though it's not in this passage, that Paul says to Timothy is he wants Timothy to guard the good deposit, which is uh, to say to guard the good deposit of faith, uh, the good deposit of the gospel. Uh, to not swerve from it, as he says here, but to be a steward of what's been revealed by God, uh, and that is the gospel of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, and so that, that alone, I think that idea alone tells us, and all these things, um, this came up last week too, it tells us that churches are not round tables of shared ideas. You know, and that's not to say as churches we don't have round tables, like literally, we do, right? But, or but sit around them and talk and debate. We do. We disagree on minor things and we share ideas and we talk. And it's not to say that churches don't or shouldn't do that, but it is to say that it's not ultimately a round table where we share ideas and try to agree on everything and figure out what's the lowest common denominator of belief and then try to just say that's where we, that's where we stand. Or to say that whatever we think about God is true that's not right. That's not true either. Paul's not like, like this smacks of someone who's saying there is a right and a wrong, in other words, right? It's not like this round table in, uh, in every sense of, of the doctrinal uh, notion. In fact, kind of a sidebar here, I was reading an article in the Star and Tribune last week, which I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but it was an article on 
how Gen Z was starting to make fun of Gen Y for the types of jeans they were wearing. Did you guys hear about this by chance? It was in the Star and Tribune. I didn't know this either, uh, but I don't even know why I read it, but I just thought, I'm going to click on that and read that. Anyway, uh, but I, I was reading it thinking about some of this stuff, and I just thought, so, so millennials are, you know, getting a little bit older now, and then Gen Z is like saying, you know, there's a new gene, and you guys are looking older. And so I'm, I'm, I'm like looking at, as a Gen Xer, right, I'm sort of like, I guess I'm out of this now, but I don't know what, I, what I'm all about. But I'm reading this thinking, we have a really misplaced sense of just, I mean, I mean, culturally as people, of where we put this idea of right and wrong, right? Because I think, I think like, it, internally, we all have this sense of, yeah, there are right and wrongs in life. There are clear lines. Um, but like to say there's a right and a wrong when it comes to genes, but not when it comes to religion, is really misplaced, right? Because if you're saying there's a right and a wrong when it comes to, to you know, high-waisted, baggy jeans or skinny jeans or anywhere in between, but you're not saying there's a right and a wrong when it comes to religion, that's completely whacked. That's completely messed up. That's exactly where people are at, right? Whatever you believe about God is true. Whatever you believe about Jesus is fine. You do you, but not with genes. And we kill each other, right? It should be the other way around. Who cares what you wear? But when it comes to what is the truth about the gospel, this is what Paul is getting at. There is a right and there's a wrong. And if the wrong is being propagated in a church, it should be called out, right? And if there's a right in a church, it should be celebrated and, and sung about. But, but again, as sinners in Ephesus, as sinners in Minneapolis, um, even as Christians who know better, this can become kind of a twisted threat. And we, we just have to be courageous as pastors and as non-pastors, just as Christians, um, to have the right buckets, right, uh, here in categories for these things. So anyway, all that to say, to go back to this, churches are gatherings of Christians who celebrate the one right faith. We celebrate a singular truth, a revealed gospel. And if we don't have it, we have nothing. We have not only no gospel, we have no unity. There's nothing that would be a glue that would tie us together. Um, we'd cease to exist. We'd slowly fade away. And, and Paul knows that. This is a very diverse church in Ephesus. The only thing unifying these people is their shared belief on Jesus. And if you lose that, all of a sudden, it's anything you want to believe is true, who are we to say otherwise? I mean, that's the beginning of the end to not almost anything in life and culture, but, um, but, but certainly to theology and, and the truth of the gospel as well. So pastors then are called to guard the gospel to protect the gospel with an iron fist, with our lives lay down our bodies and our, uh, our, our whole selves for the sake of the one revealed truth and to call out things that threaten it and contradict it. The wider principle here for all of us as Christians, pastor or not, is that knowing our Bible well should be a priority in life. Uh, alongside prayer, it's the most important Christian rhythm that we can engage in regularly. And I'm not talking about getting a verse from Instagram. Uh, that doesn't do anything for you. It really doesn't. Because you forget it. Your brain's trained to forget it right when you keep scrolling. I mean to actually pick up a print Bible or phone, whatever, but, but look at them. Look at the words and say, God is saying this to me. And, and, and to understand how this book hangs together, how it fits, how the Old Testament moves to the new 
how it's a dynamic story, not a flattened one, not a stagnant one, um, how Jesus is the ultimate point and the hero. I mean, biblical illiteracy is a thing, right? It's always going to be in culture at large, but for Christians, it shouldn't be. It, it, it's a tragedy if it is. So um, in the spirit of all that Paul is saying here, this is for pastors, but the wider truth is knowing our Bible well and reading it well, especially with other Christians. I mean, alone is great. Better is reading it with other Christians. You were meant to. Um, that's not something maybe a lot of you have heard growing up. Um, it was about you in a closet with Jesus with your Bible open. Prayer closet. I don't know if that's a thing anymore. But um, that's not, I mean, that's not bad. <laughs> um, better, much better is you need other Christians. You need to read the Bible with other people. The Spirit will use that to inform you, shape you, teach you, show you things you didn't know before. Um, so anyway, I know a lot of you guys know this. I want, I want to remind you of this to, so that w- to whatever degree your Bibles are collecting dust, that you would just remedy that. And you would remember that to be a person of God is to consistently be fed by him through his word, which he calls bread. Jesus calls bread. We, we live by the bread of this, and to take it away is to starve ourselves. All right, let's move on, though, to kind of the, the meat of what he's saying here, which is when theological focus goes awry, right? So verse 4 again, so he's saying, charge people not to teach another doctrine, to pick up in four, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, like intellectual speculation, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. All right, and then, then he goes on here. I put in brackets um, just to remind you. He goes on into this short, like, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, what do you call it when you diverge and say something else? I forget. Anyway, a, a discourse or something on the purpose of the law. Digression, there it is. Uh, on the purpose of the law or the right use of the Ten Commandments or the moral law of the Old Testament in the New Testament era. Um, which is a big question in theology. A lot of you know that. Um, he spends a few verses here. There's lots to say, but we'll get to that in a second. What I want you to see, though, here, because when he says, like, myths and endless genealogies, you might be like, what does that even mean? Like, what did that look like? And I'll talk about that in a second. But look at what these guys were doing. They were desiring to be teachers of the Old Testament law, but they had no idea what they were saying. Uh, and, Paul, and Paul, and then, of course, what happens after this, too, is he digresses and talks about the right purpose, but... But context helps, right, with meaning. It always does. And so what this tells us in context is that the false teachers in Ephesus were legalists. They were centralizing the law. They were deviating from grace alone. Uh, They were saying Jesus isn't enough. You also have to follow the rules to stay saved. Uh, These were Jewish Christians likely, uh, if not exclusively, um, who were Christians or becoming Christians but had not moved on from the old system uh, as the first apostles, Jewish Christians taught, as Jesus taught, as a Jewish man himself who was also the Son of God, but the changes he made. All, all these things were a part of the story that they were missing, that they were choosing not to believe in, that they were just oblivious to. We don't know motive here, but we know that they were present. And we know this issue of desiring to be teachers of the law but doing it wrongly 
was a predominant issue in Ephesus, and it always has been. That's why this is here. It's a predominant issue in Minneapolis and in anywhere in the world where the church is because in our heart we're, by nature, um, self-justifiers, and we, we like to save ourselves even, even as believers. All right. Shouldn't surprise us, though, uh, Paul is always battling this. It was the issue in Galatia, the Galatian churches. It was the issue in the church in Rome, in Corinth. Uh, if you know those letters in the New Testament, and, and here, clearly in Ephesus, clearly, clearly, it is the, at least one of the major issues, if not the only issue, when it comes to false doctrine, is adding law to Jesus. Adding requirements uh, to Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy, saying, stop that. Uh, squelch it. And instead, preach the truth. But let's look at these couple of words quick, uh, in case you're wondering, uh, like, I, like I wonder. Um, what does myths and, and genealogies mean? I think in light of the idea of these people uh, push, being law pushers, myths could, uh, it could simply mean flat-out false teaching, like in that sense they were, they were myths. Or it could mean stories that aren't grounded in history or truth. So that'd be like someone preaching anecdotal spiritual stories that have no particular reference in Scripture, maybe a, a little appendage of Scripture on the end to make it sound biblical. But without Christ attached to them, they always become moral stories rather than gospel stories, which make more of us rather than make much of him, of God. The mention of genealogies is a little different and kind of oddly specific, but interesting because genealogies are in the Bible, whereas myths are not. There's no myths in the Bible, but there are genealogies. Um, and they're important, genealogies are, because history is important, and the fact that Jesus descended from certain people and not others is very theologically important as well. So the question then becomes, why is genealogies listed here um, as, a, as a bad thing and something that Paul's saying, this is what they're doing, this is who they are, you should address this, correct this. And, and again, I think linking this in context with legalism and a misuse of, of the law helps. And that, again, it's, it's likely that certain Jewish Christians were focusing on genealogies in a more fleshly way rather than Jesus-y way. A way that focused on blood rights and birth order and ultimately their good works over the grace of God given through Jesus' death, which led them to a, a heightened sense of self or something rather than Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, to put it another way, there's a way to look at a genealogy or to think about genealogy, especially if you were a Jewish Christian in the first century, but for anybody. There's a way to look at a genealogy that leads you to kind of flash the jersey a bit and say, look at me, look at where I came from, look at who I am. And then there's a way to look at a genealogy as if they were about grace or not about us at all. And, and this is why it's so important that the Bible breaks genealogical rules uh, where you see things like the secondborns are chosen over the firstborns to be the heirs sometimes, right? Gentiles are grafted in to the, to the old, even in the Old Testament at times to, um, to Israel. Paul says to be a Jew is to be one inwardly spiritually, not by blood, but by faith. That's a big deal in his argument in the book of Romans. So if you're a Christian, you are a spiritual Jew, the Bible says, which is to say you are a spiritual person of God. You are in covenant with him now uh, by faith, not by blood, not by works, not by effort, whether yours or your parents, but by God alone. 
uh, who saves those who cry out to him uh, with open hands. And also why Jesus himself breaks with the genealogical line of Moses to show he was a savior from a different line, from the line of kings, and saves us not based on the law of Moses or our commandment keeping, but based solely on his work for us on the cross. So I could go on, but again, the the genealogical rule breaking in the Bible teaches us or shifting or again, if you read genealogies, there's breaks in the patterns, like those kinds of things. But the genealogical rule breaking teaches us it's not by race or blood rights or logic or inherited or worked out deeds of righteousness that were saved But these Jewish Christians in Ephesus were missing this uh, entirely, if they ever had it at all. And they were um, flashing the jersey and puffing themselves up um, as elite Christians because they were Jewish uh, over these Gentiles, uh, which again is is to say they um, thought too much of themselves and thought they had their status as believers um, based off something they did and not just Christ. Then this phrase where Paul says, the aim of our charge. So this is really all I, this is what I want for you guys. This is what I want for you, Timothy, for your church. This is what I brought to you. This is what I want for Christians. The aim of our charge is love, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere trust in Jesus, a sincere faith, a sincere belief. This is like Paul saying in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Um, saying circumcision doesn't count is to say the law doesn't count. Uh, but, but what matters now in the New Testament era is faith in Jesus, belief in him, trust in his blood to wash us alone, uh, not our works, and then working through love for other Christians and all people. That, that's what matters now. Uh, to, to image and embody God's love for sinners through our sacrificial love for others. That, that's the new law. First uh, John 3.23, I don't have up here, uh, great place to look. Uh, John says, what is the new command? What's the new command for us? One, to believe in, God, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to believe in him and to love Christians. That's the new commands. And so we can't claim to be Christians and not have belief, right? We can't claim to be a Christian and not have love for other believers who are the body of Christ. And that's kind of his big, his big argument. Paul's, that's John, Paul's way of saying that, uh, I think here, is faith working through love or love that issues from a pure heart and a sincere faith. That's kind of the, the, the main thing, okay? Lots to say about the, the terminology here. We could spend all day on it. But, but I want you to see is um, that Paul says certain persons swerving from these have wandered away. They, they're, they're speculating intellectually rather than stu- stewarding revealed truth. Uh, and there's a notable contrast between what Paul wants. He wants love and faith rather than pride and works-centeredness. And, um, and this is what happens when you swerve from the gospel is you become prideful because you centralize knowledge, you displace love, you... Um, Climb the ladder of self-actualization. You compare yourselves to others who are less than you or who are more than you, and you're either crushed by that or elated. Um, but Jesus, for that person, is not in that equation, right? And, and so what Paul is saying then to Timothy is essentially, this is why I left you behind in Ephesus. This is a threat in the church. 
a counter-gospel that centralizes moralistic myths, genealogical jersey-flashing, and law-centered teaching. Fix it by preaching the truth and giving some tough love to those who are obstinate. All right, and then Paul digresses. Uh, This is the last section, the right way to use the law. He digresses because um, the obvious question is, after you read all what we just read and talked about all we just talked about is, well, what do we do then with the law, right? Like, if it's abrogated, if it's not, if it doesn't count anymore, uh, then what's, what purpose did it serve or does it continually serve? Let's say if you were reading Deuteronomy or reading Exodus, um, how should you understand it or, or read it? And so Paul digresses there for Timothy's sake, the Ephesian church's sake, um, and, of course, our sake, because this is God's word for us as well. Let me read this again. So Paul says, Now we know the law is good if one uses it rightfully or lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he goes on to explain um, what that might look like, or probably was looking like in Ephesus. But honestly, look at that, look at that, uh, paragraph for a second as a list and think you know I mean part part of the point of this we'll come back to this but part of the point is to look at that as a mirror and say man that is like a description of humanity at large right that that is our world but that is also our hearts Christian or not Um, sexual look at that sexual sin lying uh, murdering which is from the heart not just the body Um, disobeying fathers and mothers striking people um, being unholy being sinful being a liar, and you could go on. This isn't like exhaustive list, obviously, right? But it's like, wow, that's heavy. Um, but that's me, and that's us, and that's our world. That's a fallen person right there. But, but, th- but think about you first rather than another person who's harming you because that's like, yeah, you've, been, you've all been hurt by people like this. I have too, but we have done this to others. Anyway, um, Paul's like, so, so anyway, Paul's saying, to go back to the question, Again, in context, clearly the false teaching had to do with the misuse of the law, or else why would he digress like this, right? But the confusion comes when, look what happens in this passage. Paul says this awesome but like unhelpful statement, right? The law is not laid down for the just, but for sinners. And so then the question is, well, which are we? If you're a Christian, are you a sinner or are you justified before God? Are you holy, are you righteous, or are you a sinner? Are you ungodly? The, the, the complexity here comes with the idea that as Christians, we have a split personality. We are both. We are wretch and righteous. We are fully stained and yet fully washed. We are sinful and justified. So if we ask, like, as Christians, uh, which are we in this passage, um, and then which is the law for, it, it becomes kind of complicated, right? Is the law for us as sinners, or is it not for us as the righteous who live by faith? You see how it's kind of complex? Well, here's how I'd resolve this tension, and I, I, would, I just put it on screen here for clarity. I'm just going to read through this, and we'll, we'll keep talking about it. But I think what he's saying is, using the law rightfully or, or lawfully, understands that it was laid down for sinners like us, Christian or not, sinners like us. But the question remains, to what end? So that we might stop sinning? 
If the law could restrain sin, wouldn't it also be for the just as well for their ongoing application of it and use of it? But actually it says here it was not laid down for the just. And in Christ, we as Christians are the justified. We're the just, justified by his, by his blood alone, made righteous by Christ's work for us, not our own. So we can take this two ways. One, the law was laid down for sinners, all of us, to expose the wrong and hold up the mirror so we can see the dirt on our face and on our souls. And yet, two, it's not laid down in the same way for Christians who are the just. It continues its ministry of bringing low and exposing sin and condemning, but also taking a back seat to Jesus when we're saved. This is really important to see. Uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia, a fourth century uh, theologian, actually known as the, the greatest biblical interpreter of his time, um, and the spiritual head of the exegetical school of Antioch, if you've heard of that. Another school was in Alexandria um, in the first, century, first centuries of the church that were complementary, that emphasized different things, so kind of cool. But anyway, he says this about this issue, but actually in commentary on this very passage. All right? So we have, we have commentary from an early Christian, right? We have lots of that written down actually and preserved for us, which is very helpful. But he writes this, very helpful. He says, the purpose of the law is to prohibit all iniquity and to set a minimum standard for those in need of it. But for those who have been justified and freed from sin, it is superfluous. It's unnecessary. It's unneeded. Its time is over. These justified ones are the baptized, who need not to be instructed to refrain from sin, but rather to be taught to conform to the pattern in which they now stand. The pattern being the gospel. The pattern being we are alive in Christ. We have new identities. The, the, the New Testament says things like set your mind on things above, on Christ himself, rather than set your mind on the law. Know who you are as one who's been unified with the creator of the universe. Know that you've walked out of the tomb of your sins and of death through the command of God and you are a new man or a new woman. Live as though it's true. Keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5.25. Keep in step with his work in your life. These are, these are mystical but different ways of talking about life change than driving us back to a covenant that said, do this and then you will live. Abstain from this and then you will have life. Observe my law perfectly and then you will not face exile from me like Adam and Eve and any other human being who's ever lived. That's different, right? The law was a part of an old system that was meant to break. It was meant to be imperfect, meant to foreshadow the latter in some ways, but meant to break and give way to the whole unbroken one that will never break, which is Christ. Romans 5.20 also says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, make sin worse. But where sin increased, grace, the grace of God, his love for us, his death for our sins, abounded all the more. And what I would say to you guys, uh, in short, though there's again lots to say about this, I would just say the law can and does still serve this purpose. Uh, it, it still plays this part in the story. Uh, what happens sometimes is Christians forget this. We think that it um, does this to lead us to Jesus and we convert, but then it changes job descriptions. And now all of a sudden the law, the Ten Commandments, changes job descriptions and now it's a good thing. Now it's doesn't increase sin anymore. Now it's keepable perfectly. 
and now it benefits us. And that's just not what the Bible says. It, it is instead laid down for the sinner to serve as a mirror or to use Paul's metaphor in Galatians 3 to serve as an in-home tutor when we're kids. But then once we leave the home, there's no need for that tutor anymore. Now we're adults. Or as Teddy from Mopsuestia said, it's superfluous. Uh, now we have Christ. Uh, I heard another, another guy or a theologian type uh, say this years ago. I said this before to you guys, but uh, where he said, the law is like a mirror. It exposes our sin. Jesus, though, is like the rag and soap. Uh, it, but it's altogether different from the mirror, right? Like you, you don't, when you look in a mirror and you see a smudge on your face, you don't pull the mirror off the wall and use glass to clean your cheek, right? In the same way, you don't use the law. The, the, the commandments of God could never clean you, ever. And they still can't. It's only the rag and soap. It's the blood of Jesus. And we know this as believers, but it's very easy to forget, right? Especially when you see some of these things listed, printed out in the Bible. If we don't know how to handle the Bible, how it, it itself tells us how to read it, how certain parts of it serve a purpose for a time, an epoch, but that epoch is over. If we don't know this, we're going to completely misread it, right? And apply parts of it that have been, that have been faded away uh, for, for a very long time. And, and all of you in the room do this. I mean, no one here sacrifices goats, right, or sheep or doves. All of you know that time's over. We don't question that. The hard part, though, is when it comes to other types of laws that were maybe relational or that dealt with civil issues amongst the people of Israel or that were flat-out moral, like the Decalogue, like the, the Ten Commandments. Um, that's where it becomes tricky. But even then, the Bible is saying that, that time is over. We're not mediated anymore or stayed in covenant with God based on anything you ever do, ever, but, but only by him. Galatians 4, I have one more angle on this, guys. I want to uh, park here for just a, a few minutes. Galatians 4, 4 to 5, um, Paul also says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, a couple of quick things on this. Um, under here doesn't just mean timeline or chronology. It means under its weight. The law came in the Bible with fear and death and judgment. It was an indictment, a death warrant. Uh, Hebrews 12 talks about this, Exodus 20. Um, it brought death, not life. Uh, Martin Luther says about this verse, the words, Christ was born under law, are worth all the attention we can bestow upon them. They declare that the Son of God did not only fulfill one or two easy requirements of the law, but that he endured all the tortures of the law. The law brought all its fright to bear upon Christ until he experienced anguish and terror such as nobody else ever experienced. His bloody sweat, his need of angelic comfort, his tremulous prayer in the garden, his lamentation on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All bear eloquent witness to the sting of the law. He suffered to redeem those who were under the law or this unkeepable standard that brought harm rather than life. So, when Paul then, going back to his language in 1 Timothy 1, when he says the law was laid down for the lawless or the sinner, that's us. But it's also for the sake of Christ, who even though he never sinned or of course was never lawless, 
It was laid down for him as well who became like a criminal on the cross. He became sin, right? As uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He became sin even though he knew no sin. So it was laid down for him, not for his moralistic instruction, because of course Jesus never needed that. He was perfect. But laid down that he might be put underneath it to bear its weight in our place. But then to come up out of that tomb and make a new covenant with sinners through his bloody body and through his resurrected, death-overcoming resurrection. Basically what this means is that, um, and I'll throw this list up here again, when when you and I fail to meet the test or the standard, um, and just look at that list again for a minute, or if, if you're not a Christian, you may have a different a standard, but you all have a standard. You may have someone in your life where you think that's the ideal human being. But here's the, here's the bad news. You don't me- measure up to that person, right? Like whatever you think is a perfect like human way of living and thinking, you don't measure up, whether it's a way of value, valuing things or doing things. So the point is, there's a standard biblically, but even if you have a different standard, it's, there, there's a large gap, a chasm between you and it. So, but at least look at this and think. What, what, what the good news is to understanding Jesus was born under laws, he was born underneath a weighty standard you couldn't keep. Isn't that amazing? He came into this like swamp of human disobedience. He came into a swamp of debauchery and lawlessness. He came into it, and even though he was perfect and full of light, not darkness, he entered into it to bear its weight. So you can be lifted from that yoke. The Bible calls the law a yoke, like a heavy yoke of burden. It's the same language, right? Jesus took the yoke. He was pressed down underneath the yoke so you can take yours off and walk upright. Uh, the Bible images Israel coming up out of ex, uh, the, the Egypt, ex, Egyptian Exodus, walking upright, no longer hunched over when they were slaves. Uh, that's our story too. So when we fail to meet the standard, which is every day, the good news is Christ, the law was given for the sake of Christ, that he might fulfill it. He bore the consequence, you guys, of our failures and love for us. He bore our punishment of our inner wickedness. And now in its wake, like verse 11 says, all we have is the gospel of the, the glory of the blessed God. And I say all we have, we get it. This is all we need, right? A, a God who reconciles us to himself and justifies us so that now the superfluous law gives way to his, his grace alone. And... <clears throat> So what Paul is saying here to start his letter to Timothy is he's saying, Timothy, you must preach him. There are others outside and inside the church. And man, this is a message for us today too. We need this, guys. There's a threat out there and there's a threat in here and in here. There's always threats. But he's saying there's a threat that will want to dilute him by way of adding to him. You know? Uh, it's, like, it's like diluted bubble gum, right? Where you add another piece to it and it doesn't really help a little bit. He's like, keep it pure. Uh, that's not the best metaphor, whatever. Um, I didn't really work. Um, but don't keep it pure. Look, the law pokes. The law pokes at you, but he saves. The law says don't sin. He kills sin. 
You see the difference? You see the betterness? You're under him. And he says, my yoke is easy. It's not a burden, right? Remember Matthew 11? The law has a heavy yoke. He says, but my yoke's different. Jesus didn't come into the world to help you keep the law. That's a common misunderstanding Christians have. That Jesus came, Israel couldn't keep the law. That was a problem. Jesus came, well, I'll help you. I'll do it for you. I'll image it for you. Just follow my lead. I'll give you my spirit to kind of give you advice and give you help. It's, that's not in the Bible. That's not the truth. Jesus came to replace it with himself. So that now we affirm the only way we're saved is by what he did there. He bled for you. He died for your sexual sin. He died for your lies. He died for your disbelief. He died for your idleness that leads you not to love. He died for, for, my, for your and my obstinance, right? Our self-deification, everything. Right down that list we saw and beyond. He loves you guys. But, but again, don't miss the opportunity to believe in him. Like, we're only alive so long, right? A lot of you are Christians, some of you aren't. But what, what, Tim, what Paul's saying to Timothy is preach him to your church. Don't add to him. And then correct those who think they know better, but who add a burden to other Christians through a misuse of the law. That, that's what I want us to see. And, um, and if you didn't know that legalism was a threat to your soul, I really want you to see that and try to like ruminate on, on that this week and it, understand every single one of Paul's letters, he's trying to stop misguided Christians from pushing the Ten Commandments over people as, obli- as obligatory. Every one of his letters. It's grace alone, alone. And every one of his letters he's writing, I love you guys, but stop it. Stop that. Jesus is way more beautiful than you're making him out to be. He's way more gentle with you than you're making him out to be. He's way more good and perfect and holy and amazing and close to you than you're making him out to be. Why are you making the gospel less beautiful? By adding to it. It's enough. Paul wants his pastors to know this. Paul wants his churches to know this. God wants us to know this. It's right down the list, right? But the message is guard the good deposit of the faith. Not the law. Deposit of the law. Guard the good deposit of the faith. Stand firm. Be strong in grace. Preach the truth. And lovingly correct those who are wayward. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this passage. Um, I, pray for, I pray for our church uh, in this season. And what a great season in a lot of ways. Great time to be alive. Also kind of a terrible time uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but that's almost always true. We need you. Um, help us in our struggles. Help us in our disbelief. Help us, in our, help us from our sin. Help us up, God, to a place of... Um, seeing you as bigger and us as smaller. Like John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And part of that is our our proper use of the law, uh, which the whole point of it in the story is to help us say what John the Baptist said. That's kind of the whole point. Our proper use is to say, Jesus must get bigger because the more I try to be good is the less I am. The more I try to be good, the more I realize I don't want to be good. So even if I am, my motives are whacked. They're way off. The more I try to be good, the more I am prideful. 
the more I'm a jerk to others, the more I compare myself, the more I'm crushed by the standard of someone else who's better than me. And I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm far from you, I'm scared. But the more I think about you, Jesus, all that goes away. The more I think about you saying, it is finished, it's done, the more I'm at peace. The more I'm forgiven, the more I love. The more I think about the cross, the more I'm, I, I have time and, and open hands to love others, especially those uh, who are part of the household of faith. Um, so God, train us. Um, help us to dust off our Bibles. Help us to know and hear your voice, to understand the biblical story well, so that we can be actually like Timothy here, who handles the law lawfully and rightfully and not wrongfully as a mirror, not as a washcloth, because you're the only washcloth. Um, so anyway, God, help us to sing this last song with gladness and joy, uh, to be at peace knowing that God loves us so much, he sent his one and only son into the world to die for our sins under the law to redeem those who are under its oppressive weights. Um, and that's really what First uh, Timothy 1 is about. Amen.